<clears throat> I don't know about you, but I like a good party. I like a party. I love people getting together, celebrating something, laughing with one another, maybe even a little bit of dancing. When I was a child, I loved our family parties with our neighbors and others who would come over, especially when my mother would pull out her accordion and start playing, and my father, his violin, and our neighbor on the piano, it would get quite exciting. The memories of those times, even though they're a bit distant now, are rich in my heart. And I think from a young age, I enjoyed that festivity, that, that reaction that we have when others are celebrating with us. I was reading this week about a tradition in the Jewish faith at the end of their liturgical cycle, their cycle of reading through the whole Torah in, in, uh, in church. When the reading of the holy texts is finished for that cycle, they have a whole celebration with music and parading of the scrolls around the church. That's how they mark the end of their church year, with celebration and with dancing. And this morning we're ending our cycle, and the, the writer that I was reading said, why don't we do that? I wish we did a little bit of that celebrating at the end, marking the end of our journey. And as I mentioned earlier, our, our journey begins again next Sunday, on the first Sunday of Advent. So today is kind of like our New Year's Eve. It's our New Year's Eve. A time of reflection and celebration, perhaps. That, that good tension that a New Year's Eve brings between looking backward and looking forward. A hopeful optimism with perhaps a little bit of what might have been. We look back and perhaps question missed opportunities, but then we look forward to a chance to do things again, perhaps differently, or maybe in the same way, but with a different perspective, an intentionality, maybe. It's a, it's a hinge day, a hinge festival day in the church, a hinge moment where things turn, where things change a looking back and a looking forward moment. And you see, these hinge moments, they occupy so much of our lives. Hinge moments like retirement or graduation or empty nesting or losing someone you love. Hinge moments like packing up and moving or packing someone else up and moving them. Hinge moments where you'll never be the same, thank goodness, but also hinge moments where you'll never be the same, which might mean some loss or some adjustment. Hinge moments that help us reflect on what is important in our lives, to help us question our own values. Hinge moments that have us sorting through memories, holding tight to them, or burying them away, hoping to never see them again. Hinge moments, they, they have a way of impacting all of our relationships, our relationships with the people around us, but also with the people we might not even want around us, and especially, especially the people we wish we could talk to just one more time. These hinge moments, they impact, they impact our outlook. They impact how we hear the gospel, how we see the world, how we interact with people. 
They impact how we use our time, our energy, our money, our emotional energy. And hinge moments are intersectional too. Think about, think about times when you've been in a transition in your life, perhaps in the midst of a major one, like a medical crisis or, or something that has you fearful for the future, for your own life, or, or maybe just sitting in a state of sorrow and sadness. And yet, at that same time, in that same moment, in that same season, you're celebrating something, something wonderful and beautiful, like a wedding or a new birth. See, these hinges, these hinge moments can intersect, and that intersection brings its own challenges, the guilt of being joyful in the midst of pain, or the shame of being sorrowful in the midst of others' joy when everyone around you is happy, but you are not in that place. You see, the intersections of our experiences, they can, they can begin to be somewhat dizzying in our looking forward and our looking backward, in our, in our overlapping experiences of emotion, in our overlapping experiences of change and uncertainty and all that comes upon us on our journey. Hinges, hinges, these transition points, these awkward joints, the shifting of our reality the ever-changingness of it. These are all part of our story. And these hinge moments, these periods of transition, they can, they can be times or places where we lean into our faith and lean into our church community, or they can be times when we try to run from God. Ironically, it's in these hinge moments that, that God is most ready to be present in our lives and when we are most in need of God, when we are most in need of, of the Lord who loved and cried at the death of his friend Lazarus, the Jesus who knew the deepest of secrets and still embraced the woman at the well, the Jesus who showed love even to those who hated him, the God who sent his son and watched him die on the cross, the God who connects to humanity in suffering and in joy, in all of the hinge moments, this is the God that must be the God of the church, or the church will rend God irrelevant to the people in the pews. Will rend God irrelevant to the people in the pews when their lives are turned asunder at these hinge moments. The God who created us to be people of change, like the world that was created out of chaos, like the seas calmed and the prophetic word ever evolving, like the human understanding of God, the God who created us to be people of change, but also people who can experience God in the ever-changingness of this life. This God must be the God of the church so that the God in the midst of changes, is welcomed. The, the, the church continues in the midst of all of these changes in our lives to point people toward God, not toward the God they knew in one time and one phase of their life, but, but the God who is with them among and in and through all of these transitions, continuing to point toward the God who is present in their lives. Because once again, if the church fails to be the church of God, who is present in the ever-changing world, in our ever-changing lives, we will rend God irrelevant. 
I'm being very particular with my words here because it isn't God who becomes irrelevant and it isn't the church that has the power to make God irrelevant, but rather the church, any community of faith, risks standing in the way of God's relevance to God's people when the church fails to put God at the center of who we are and what we do. People will look elsewhere when they're going through transitions in life, when the church is silent in the hinge moments of their life. They will go somewhere, and they should, because where they go is where they will find God, because God is present in the uncomfortable times, in the midst of divorce and loss and death, in the midst of transitions, in the midst of fears, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of changing circumstances, in the midst of illness, in the midst of uncertainty about the future. In all of this, God is present, and God will be where God's people will be in those hinge moments. And if that's where God is present, then the church should be there, waving flags of direction, constantly pointing the way to God as the source of comfort and the source of hope and the source of love. And far too often, churches are silent in the midst of these transitions. And when they are silent, the church and God are at odds. And friends, God doesn't like competition. God especially doesn't like competition from ones who profess to act in God's name. And so, friends, this is what we mark on this last day of the liturgical year. A recognition, a recognition as a church as we look back on the year that in all that has happened in our lives individually and corporately and as a country, as a world, in all of it, all that we've experienced in our scripture readings, in the gospels, in our times of worship, all of the holidays that we have celebrated, all of the pain, the joy, the ups, the downs, the hinge moments, the transitions, the shifts, the joys, the sorrows, the pains, the laughter, in all of it, in all of it, we recognize that Christ is Lord of all. All of it. Christ the King, the only King, over and in and through our lives. So what does it look like? What does it look like to be a church that recognizes first and foremost that Christ is the one who reigns over us and in us and through us? What does it look like to be a church that doesn't get in the way of God's relevance in the life of the people, a church that honors people and their experiences and points to God in the midst of the hinges and the transitions? What does it mean to be a church that celebrates, weeps, laughs, and links arms, journeying one step in front of the other together, earnestly, faithfully, lovingly, walking with one another and pointing each other on the path ahead, the way to God? What does this look like? I wonder, thinking in your life, how have you experienced this in the life of the church, here or, or in another church? But then the, the shift of that question becomes, how can you be a part of bringing about that type of church? 
How can you be about that work? How can that be who you are and who you bring? Because what is a church if it isn't this gathering of the wounded, this gathering of the people on a journey together, this gathering of people with tired feet who link arms and walk one step in front of the other, pointing one another to God? In our scripture lesson this morning from the Revelation to John, a letter that is often misunderstood and ignored, we, we have a glimpse of John's understanding of Jesus and the world. John, and, and by the way, this likely isn't the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. There's a lot of uh, scholarly writing on this, but they're likely not the same person. He's writing at a time when tyrannical rule is oppressing the people. The temple has been destroyed and the persecution of followers of Jesus is now quite rampant. The people are in a state of crisis. And much of it is centered on the actions of the royal government in Rome. Many of the early Christians saw a path where they could go along to get along with Rome. We've seen this echoed throughout history. In in World War II, the Christians in Germany thought, well, we can go along and get along with the government. And then there were others who stood up to it. And very similarly, very similarly, at this time when John's writing, there were some who said that they could... They could make it work. They could live among the empire. But John found this to be completely absurd. The moment that the church or anyone else allowed anything to get between humanity and God, the movement would be doomed. The church would be doomed. And much of Revelation is a depiction of that struggle, that struggle that John saw playing out, the struggle between the forces of evil, the things that would draw us away from God and out of God's love, the struggle between the forces of evil and God. But John sees this interesting conundrum that faces the church then and today. John boldly declares that Jesus has conquered all evil, all evil on the cross. And yet he looks around him and he sees evil in the world. And so there's this tension, this this confusion almost. How do we have the impact of evil in the world and the strength of evil all around us that's mounting in our lives But then on the other hand, have God who has said, I have conquered all evil. There's this tension of living in the present, but following a God who has a whole nother reality set forth for us. John is writing to people who are watching evil seem to be winning. But he reiterates that even in the midst of a world that seems filled with suffering and loss and pain, even in and through this, even in and through a world that puts so many other kings before God, that tries so hard to put other kings before God, including actual kings and rulers of government, but also the kings of social pressures, financial worries, the kings of keeping up appearances, and the kings of looking strong, at the cost of others, and even the kings of self-satisfaction, all of these other kings that the world puts before God. In all of it, John declares that Christ is still the triumphant one, and that Christ, in the midst of all evil, 
will triumph. That's the message of, of Revelation at its core, one of comfort, even in the midst of all the wild imagery in the book and, and strong language in the book. In fact, in the new year, I'm going to host a group reading Revelation, a group reading of it. We're going to read it aloud. That's how it was meant to be read. That's how it was meant to be heard. We're going to hear it, and then together, those who choose to do so are going to help me work to integrate it into our worship liturgy. Because this message, a message of Christ's centrality to our life as a church, this message needs to be heard. It needs to be read. It needs to be lived. It needs to be a part of our worship. In the reading that Matt read for us earlier, John is, is just introducing this letter. And when he introduces the letter, he makes three declarations about Jesus. First, he writes that Jesus is the faithful witness. Another way we've put this is that, is that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, of who God is. All the mystery becomes revealed in Christ. The second one is that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. This is such a strange term, right? The firstborn of the dead. But this is a reference directly to the resurrection. To Jesus who had died and in that death became born, became life, became conquering of death, the firstborn of the dead. And finally, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's all packed into that introduction. But then right after that, Right after that, John says that we, you, are the, are the priests of God. You're the priests of God. Without skipping a beat, John links you and me to Jesus and declares that Jesus, this faithful witness, this firstborn of the dead, this one who was resurrected, who conquered death, who was born, and even though he died, he was born anew. This one who is the king of the kings, he declares that Jesus in his life and in his death and resurrection has made us, his church, to be the ones who live as his priestly representatives in the world. It's a big deal. Because what it means is that we then follow the lead of Jesus as witnesses as ones who live into his resurrection, and as ones who celebrate Jesus as the center of our lives and as the one who rescues us from all threats. We echo those three characteristics that John points out of Jesus. That's what a priest does. A priest brings about those attributes. The language in our text this morning reads that Jesus loves us and freed us from our sin. Another way to translate this is that Jesus loves us and has loosed us from our sins. I love that, that word, loosed us. Regardless of the translation, though, I want you to notice the difference in the verb tenses that's consistent in both of those translations. The loosening or the freeing has already happened. Did you notice that? It's in the past tense. Jesus has loosed us. Jesus has freed us. 
The loosening or freeing has already happened. It happened in the death of Jesus. But that phrase, loves us, loves us, is different. It's in the present tense. Jesus freed you already. That's been done. But Jesus loves you now. Now and tomorrow, and tomorrow's tomorrow, and by the way, yesterday, and the yesterdays before it. Jesus has loved you, and Jesus loves you. And Jesus will love you on either side of all those hinges in your life. Even when you feel alone, when the love of Jesus feels beyond reach, beyond you, Jesus freed you, and Jesus loves you. And this priesthood, your priesthood, our priesthood as the church and as individual disciples of Christ means that we are called to be mediators, the ones who bring witness of Christ's love into the world, witness of the freedom Christ brings in his death and resurrection, of Christ's reign as our king, a king of love and a king of grace. And you see, living as this priesthood of Christ means looking at our own lives and asking the question, what is God's will for me to be that witness? Choosing to follow Jesus, denying myself, serving others, walking on that path, walking the journey, linking arms. What does it look like for me to bring others into this glorious reign of Christ, the one who loves and the one who serves, the king like no other king, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end, the one of the hinges, our beginnings and ends, the one worthy of celebration with trumpets and with laughter and with dancing because of his faithful presence in our lives. Bringing love, bringing healing, bringing freedom, We end the year, but we begin anew. We begin anew following this one who John writes will one day be known by all, even those who have rejected him. Jesus will be known by the whole cosmos. Jesus, the Lord of all time and space. This is the one, the one who loves you, the one who freed you. In the name of the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen.